We on? Yes, we are. Um, before I start teaching, John asked me to um, report on my recent trip to Guadalajara and León. Really exciting things happening down there. So let me just tell you about it. Bit of a background story. Uh, we've been ministering to churches in um, Guadalajara, the León area, for about 20 years and made some very deep, wonderful relationships with these churches. One of them was, a, was and is a very large, um, influential church in the city. It's a cutting-edge church for Mexico. It's a grace church. There's not a trace of religion in it. And you'll understand what I mean by that when we get partway through the message this morning. But um, it, is, it is the kind of church that I firmly believe God wants for the whole country. It's really free of... It's free of uh, abuse and manipulation and control. It's free of legalism. It's very, very full of life. In any event, two years ago, we were down there and um, we'd gone on vacation with one of the pastors. And the first night of the vacation, I had a dream and I saw Shelley and I down there um, teaching at, a, at an institute, a training center. And I saw all of these young leaders coming from over Mexico to come to this, this training center at the church. And they thought they were coming to learn the secrets of this church's success because it's a big and powerful and very dynamic uh, church. You know, motivated by, I want to grow a big church, I want to be a big success. But what they were getting when they came was a foundation in grace and understanding of Holy Spirit ministry. And from this center, I saw them going out uh, all over Mexico and planting churches which were radically reckless. Love that song, radically reckless churches in the love of God. And when I woke up, in the, it was a very, very vivid dream. And when I woke up, I told Shelley, and she said, well, are you going to tell Marco about it, one of the pastors, the guy that we were with? And I said, no, um, it's, if it's from God, I don't want to push it in any way. Because usually when you receive a prophetic word from God, you tend to try to make it happen. And your fleshly efforts to make it happen usually make it explode in your face. So uh, I said, no, I'm not going to say anything to him. If this is God, God will have to speak to them. And uh, we, we went out to dinner, and, and the ministry we had done at that church was so amazingly good. This, it, it, you know, there's places where you're anointed. Did you know that's territorial? You can teach one message in one place, and it's pretty good. And you can teach exactly the same message in another place, and it's overwhelmingly powerful. Well, that's, that's what it's like for us down there. And um, he was so excited when we went out to dinner. He was so excited about the ministry that we'd done that weekend. He said, we, we have to take a next step. What's the next step? What are we going to do together? We, we can't let this go by. We have to plan for the future. And I said, well, as a matter of fact, last night I had this dream. And uh, this is what I saw. And it's pretty overwhelming, you know, that you're going to do this institute and it's going to have all these effects and blah, blah, blah. And he just just listened to me and he didn't say anything. He sort of said, well, that's interesting. So I thought, well, I shared my dream. We'll leave it at that. 
a year and a half went by and, and we were down there together again. And he said, I want you to come and speak in June. And this was last year. Uh, this was this year, June. And um, I said, yeah, at what? And he said, well, at the Institute. And I said, what Institute? And he said, well, the one you had in your dream. I said, seriously? He said, yeah, we started it. And we want you to teach at it. And, I mean, I, my world was just rocked. So I went down there, and they've got 70 to 80 students. And it's a three-year course. And they're going to graduate. And it's now they're getting accreditation with a major school. So it's, it's like a seminary. And, and I got to teach at it, and it was really, really good. And uh, afterwards, they said, well, we've got to flesh this thing out. We've, we've got to figure out how you're going to fit into this thing. And I went down to do a men's retreat uh, two weeks ago, and we had four churches in Guadalajara combining, and, and some guys came from Cancun and some other guys came from Leon, so there was about five or six, seven churches uh, represented. We got all the pastors together, and um, Marco said, present the future to these guys. What do you see? And I said, I see us coming down more often. I see us being involved in the Institute, et cetera, et cetera. And they all bought into it, which was, which was really, really cool. And in the next two weeks, we laid out the um, future for 2018 and, and thereafter. And we're going to be going for three weekends in, in June and three weekends in August. And we're going to hit all these churches in the meantime and teach almost every day at um, the Institute. And... I could not be more excited to have an opportunity to change leaders, to build into them the foundations of our faith is an opportunity to change the face of the church in Mexico. And it's actually happening. So I wanted to share that with you and, um, and hope you rejoice in it as much as I rejoice in it because it's a, it's a no pun intended, dream come true. <laughs> so, uh, Mark Myers, would you please come up? We're going to do something different today. Uh, Mark's going to read the entirety of John 9, and I want you to pay attention while he's doing it. This sermon is called um, Jesus versus Religion, and I want you to listen to him reading this, and as he's reading it, I want you to take note of the places where you see Jesus confronting religion and then we're going to go through it together and we're going to go through the entire chapter and I'm going to highlight some of these these moments so are you ready open book you can even look at your Bibles if you want and you can even make notes on your cell phone this is this is so high-tech and it's so exciting anyway let's do it John 9 as he went along he saw a man blind from birth his disciples asked him Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it in, on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, 
Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes open, they asked. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and then I could see. Where is this man? They asked him. I don't know, he, he, said, he said. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been born blind. Now the day on which Jesus had, been, had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, how can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. Then, he turned, then they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about, it, about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, he's a prophet. They still did not believe that he'd been born blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son, they asked? Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it now that he can see? We know that he's our son, the parents answered, and we know that he was born blind, but how he can see now or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He's of age. He'll speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who had already decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said, he is of, he is of age, ask him. A second time, they summoned the man who had been born blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner. He replied, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind and now I see. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I have told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Then they hurled insults at him and said, You are this fellow's disciples. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses. But as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, Now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from. Yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. And when he found him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking to you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment, I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, what are we blind to? Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. 
But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. Thank you. Very well done, Mark. Thank you. Excellent. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Okay, this simple question is the context for the entire chapter. Their question, who sinned, he or his parents, is perfectly consistent with everything they know about God up to this point until they encounter Jesus. You see, given their knowledge of their religion, the question can only have one of two answers. Either he sinned or his parents sinned. Now, the reason for this is that they've been living under the law. And under the law, it's all about justice. You get what you deserve. So if something bad has happened to you, somebody must have sinned. Either you sinned or your parents sinned. This is how it works. Under the law, good things happen to good people. Bad things happen to bad people. And this is their concept of God's justice. It's essentially a legalistic, retributive, punishment, justice. Jesus is coming to introduce an entirely new understanding of God, justice, and mercy. And he answers their question with an absolutely radical idea. And this is the first confrontation between Jesus and religion. And he says this, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. What's the work of God that might be displayed in him? Healing. This guy has been born blind by God's will so that God can perform a miracle in his life and illustrate his love and his mercy. The work of God is to heal sick people and bring mercy to mankind. Now, this sounds obvious to us today because we talk about it all the time. But this idea, this absolutely radical idea that God is about mercy, not retributive justice, is a radical idea to the people living in this time, to the people living under law. And this miraculous healing causes a real stir in the neighborhood because everyone knows this guy. He's the guy born blind. He's been a beggar since he was a child. He's pathetic. He's essentially nothing. He tells his story and the neighbors bring him to the Pharisees. At first it's unclear why the neighbors bring him to the Pharisees. Why are they bringing him to the Pharisees? But it probably had to do with the fact that this healing was on a Sabbath. And here's another confrontation between Jesus and religion. The Sabbath is the holy day upon which the law, supposedly, requires that no work be done. As far as the leaders of the Jewish religion are concerned... A miraculous healing on Sunday must be hard work. Hello? You see, when you're living under religion, any godly action is hard work. We don't have time to look at it, but the Jewish rituals for physical healing and deliverance, which existed at the time of Jesus, are unbelievably complex. They're definitely hard work, and they're mostly magic. 
So as far as these guys are concerned, the Jewish leaders, of course it's hard work to heal on the Sabbath. And, and therefore it must be against their traditions. Now there's no law in the Old Testament for healing on the Sabbath. There's no law preventing healing on the Sabbath. But they have turned healing into a hard work. And therefore, it must be against the law, against working on the Sabbath. So what's in conflict here is not Jesus and the Mosaic law. It's Jesus and the traditions of the elders. And they're twisting and manipulating an adjustment of the law into something that suits their understanding of a harsh God. So they bring him to the, to, to the Pharisees. And the Pharisees, of course, have to investigate. You see, there's... <laughs> Listen, they're not investigating the healing. They don't care that a man born blind can now see. Do you understand? This is not the, they don't care about that. What they care about is that someone had the audacity to do the miracle on a Sunday. Are you getting a grip on the religious mind and how it works? They don't care about him and they don't care about the miracle and the blessing of it, and the freedom that it brings. They only care that somebody doing this violated their religious ritual. It's very much like the sermon John spoke about last Sunday, the woman caught in adultery. They don't care about her. They're going to kill her anyway. That's just a matter of time. They're using her to confront Jesus and to put him in a position where they can trap him and find reason to kill him too. There is no thought of mercy for this woman. She's going to be stoned. That's just a matter of time. In the meantime, she's a prop in their stage play to convict Jesus. Religion always values the institution over the person. And Jesus always values the person over the institution. And I think he chose to heal on the Sabbath to confront them with this simple fact. It's a revelation to them of their own hearts. How little they actually care about people and how much they care about their traditions. never crosses their mind that God has actually been merciful or that he could be merciful by violating their religious traditions. Under religion, human suffering comes second to the protection of their religious traditions. But here's the problem for them. After listening to his story, they're faced with a dilemma as to Jesus' true nature. See, some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. Clear as far as their law is concerned. But others asked, well, how can a sinner perform such signs? How can he be a sinner if he's, if he's, if he's doing this amazing thing? But yet he did it on the Sabbath, so he much, must be a sinner. They're, and they became divided. So they were divided. And so they should be. They're trapped in their own irrational logic their own traditions have them trapped only a sinless holy man could do such a thing but a holy man would never violate the sabbath traditions how 
How are they going to solve this obvious dilemma? They're going to solve it by avoiding the plain facts. They decide that no miracle has happened. Isn't that convenient? They would rather ignore the facts than question their traditions. They question the fact of the healing by bringing the blind man's parents into the Inquisition. Well, it can't really be their son. It must be somebody else. Can't have been him. This miracle can't have happened. And so they ask the parents if this healed man is their son, and the parents say, and you can see that the parents are already in the middle of an Inquisition. The pressure is there to conform. The pressure is there to give the right religious answer. We know he's our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind. But how he can see now or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He's of age. He'll speak for himself. You see, can you feel the intimidation, the threat? His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who had already decided Whoever acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. Now, being put out of the synagogue may not sound like us much to us today because we change churches like we change our cars every couple of years. But in that community, if you were kicked out of the synagogue, you were going to hell. You're done. So this is no, this is no idle threat. This is a very, very serious thing. And so they'll do anything to avoid it. But the point is, the Pharisees have already decided that Jesus cannot be the Messiah. So they're ignoring the plain facts of the healing. They're doing whatever they can to minimize it. And they'll, do, they'll, they'll use anything to get the answer that they want. No matter the evidence, they will remain blind to the truth. So they bring the blind man back into the room and they continue to pressure him to force the facts to fit their preordained conclusions. They want to force him to give evidence that Jesus cannot be the Christ, that he's in fact a sinner. And he replies, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. They will do anything to ignore the facts, and he simply relies upon the facts. This is what happened to me. In Revelation, it says that in the last days, the enemy will be overcome by three things. One of which is the word of their testimony. The people will simply speak the truth about what God has done for them, and that can't be denied. And that in itself is, is your story. That in itself is your credibility. That in itself is the proof of the reality of Jesus in your life. You simply tell your story of what he's done for you. And this is all this blind man has to do. You know, I don't know this and I don't know that, but I know one thing. I used to be blind and I'm not blind anymore. And they can, they, can, they can twist and spindle and fold and mutilate the law. They can make their traditions. They can argue with them. They can intimidate. But they can't argue with the facts. 
And when you run into people that tell you that your Jesus is an illusion and, and he was just, a, just another nice teacher and he's this and that and he's this and that and he's not God and blah, 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 just tell them what he's done for you. This is how he changed my life. Before him, I was this. Now I'm this. I like this better than that. And so does my wife, and so do my kids, and so do all my friends and the people I work with. I have been changed. And how do you argue with that? And they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he said, I've already told you and you didn't listen. Religion does not listen. Why do you, you want, you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Now that's like, that's the knife in the back and he's turning it. So, so mm, mm, you want to become his disciples too? And they're just, you know, their little faces are bright red and they're shaking with hatred. And they hurled insults at him, I'll bet. You know, the Bible always understates these things. I'll bet they hurled more than insults. They probably, want, probably wanted to kill him right then and there. You are this fellow's disciple. We're disciples of Moses. Listen, their identity has to go back to a guy who lived thousands of years before. The blind man's identity goes back to ten minutes ago. One is nothing but tradition and memories, and the other is a living human being he's come into contact with who changed his life forever. Religion has to look backwards to, get, to find its identity. Jesus is with you every minute of every day. And he's here right now, in this room. His spirit is here right now with every one of us, accompanying us through life, giving us wisdom, giving us truth, giving us love, giving us patience, giving us gentleness, giving us forgiveness, giving us understanding, giving us peace, giving us hope, giving us healing, giving us everything we need to make it through the day. We don't have to go backwards looking for his evidence. He's here now with us today. Oh, we know, we know that God spoke to Moses. No, you don't. You think you do. You weren't there. But what the blind man knows is that Jesus spoke to him today and made him healed. We don't even know where he comes from because you didn't ask. And when he told you he came from the Father, you told him he was the devil. And the man answered, now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know, and now, now he uses their logic against them. I, I love this. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. He should know. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And what can they say to that? Because he's just skewered them on the horns of their own dilemma. To this they replied, now all you can do at this point is insult. What's left to you but jerk? You were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Probably the greatest moment of his life after the healing. Being delivered from that foul, stinking atmosphere of dead, vile religion. 
Now, I want you to note, listen to that. You just heard that conversation between the man who's been healed and the Pharisees. This is a guy who's been blind since birth. He's never read anything. He's begged his whole life. His self-worth is zero. He has no confidence. He's at the lowest. There's only, only, the only guys in the society lower than him are lepers. Did you hear the tone of his voice? Did you hear the confidence? He took these guys on on their own turf with their own rules and their own logic, and he kicked their butts. And here's what we want to note from this passage. Number one, this blind man has not only been physically healed, he has been emotionally transformed. He is a different person. He has confidence. He's not afraid of their religious posturing. He's not afraid of their rules and rituals because his life has been completely changed. He has experienced the mercy of God. He has experienced the mercy of God. And that has made him so strong and so bold, he is not going to sit there and listen to this nonsense. He has a new boldness which only an encounter with God can bring about. He has no fear of being expelled. He has already experienced the mercy of God, so he no longer needs the external structures of dead religion. Hello? Let me say that again. He has already experienced the mercy of God. He no longer needs the external structures of dead religion. Something alive has replaced that which was dead. And it will not be taken from him. Number two, have experienced, having experienced the truth, Jesus, who is the truth, he can perceive the truth Clearly, his logic is flawless. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Now, this is incredible. People, listen. This transformation, not just of his physical sight, which is merely a symbol. He was blind. He could not see truth. Now he has the truth and he can see everything truthfully. This amazing transformation has taken place without the man ever seeing Jesus. All he did was hear the word. Hello. He didn't even have to see him to be transformed by his love. All he has experienced is the power of and the love of God. But listen, here's the wonder. The good news is that Jesus is not willing to leave him without giving him a chance to come to him and actually know him. So Jesus seeks him out. Jesus has been seeking you out since the moment of your birth. To transform you from a blind person who can't see the truth into someone who knows the truth and hence lives the truth. It's not just enough for Jesus to transform your life. He wants you to have a relationship with him. He wants you to see him, so he goes and he seeks you out. 
Jesus finds him and he announces to him that he is in fact the Christ. And the man accepts Jesus at his word, believes in him, and begins to worship him. And that is a greater miracle than his physical healing. Because now he has a personal relationship with God. And Jesus ends this encounter with this statement about his purpose. And this is profound. Jesus says, For judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. I'm going to reverse the order. I'm going to save you from your blindness and those who think you can see after encountering me and rejecting me, you will be blind. And some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this, and they said, what, are we blind too? And Jesus said, if you were blind, you wouldn't be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. Now this is really interesting because Jesus said, for judgment I have come into this world. Yet, in other places... He says, I didn't come to judge. You ever notice that? He says that several times. I didn't, I didn't come to judge. And yet here he says, I've come into the world to judge. Well, we have an apparent contradiction out of, their very, out of the very mouth of our Lord. What does he mean? What does he mean? I, I, I've come to judge in another place I haven't come to judge. All right, listen to this. The judgment for which Jesus came into this world is not his judgment of us for our sins, which is how the Pharisees understood judgment and practiced it. See, under religion, you're not important. Your sins are important. The focus of religion isn't you. The focus of religion is your sins and dealing with your sins. That's how the Pharisees understood judgment. The judgment he came for in this statement is not his judgment of us for our sins, but rather our judgment of him for who he says he is. Our judgment of him is what convicts us. Do you understand what he's doing? He's not coming to judge you You're going to judge yourself by how you respond to him. He's bringing a judgment, but it's you that's going to make that judgment. And you're going to judge yourself simply, not on the basis of your sin, but on the basis of how you respond to him. It is our judgment of him which convicts us. Listen, if we reject him, no religion will save us. And if we accept him, no religion can convict us. Are you getting it? Let me say it again. Our judgment of him is what convicts us. If we reject him, no religion will save us. And if we accept him, no religion can convict us. He did not come to judge. He lets us judge ourselves by how we respond to his mercy. 
He is either a threat to our self-righteousness and our pride, or he is our freedom from it. We decide by how we accept or reject him, but decide we must. Most of the time we don't see ourselves through this lens. We see ourselves continually through the lens of religion. Judging ourselves of right and wrong according to our behavior and our actions. Always focusing on our behavior and our actions. Always focusing on the overlying grid of behavior and performance. And so some days we're having a good day because we haven't sinned that much that day. And other days we're having a bad day because we sinned a whole lot. What if the issue isn't your sin? What if it's how you respond to him? What if what matters most in your life is whether he's the center of it or not? Not you. Not your success or your failure. What if he's the whole point? Look at the confidence this guy had. One encounter with Jesus transformed, and he's a different person. And shame has no hold over him, and manipulation has no hold over him. He's completely free. What would it be like to have that freedom? For both your failures and your successes not to be the most important thing, but him to be the most important thing. Wouldn't it be interesting to have him as the center of your life and not you and your successes or your failures as the center of your life? Do you know what it's like to feel free of that where it just doesn't matter? I'm remembering a quiet time I had a number of, quite a few years ago, and I was... I was focusing on my failure, which I just have a habit of doing. Maybe, maybe this stuff means so much to me because I'm so aware of, of my failure. But anyway, I was running on in my journal about my failure. and God said, I want to ask you a question. And I said, what? And he said, how do you respond to your successes? And I said, I try to forget about them as soon as I can because I don't want to be proud. And he said, well, if you're willing to forget your successes so quickly, why won't you forget your failures? Why don't you apply the same standard of just letting it go because it's not that important and I don't want to dwell on it. Why don't you just do that with your failures? Another time in my quiet time, I said, what bothers you about me? You know, why not ask him an honest question once in a while? I said, what do you dislike about me the most? And he said, your failures are more important to you than I am. 
Listen, you've been forgiven for your failures, but you've been forgiven for your successes too. They don't matter. He matters. He's the only thing that matters. And very clearly, that's what this passage is about. The Pharisees can't give up their legalistic worldview and the blind man doesn't want it anymore because he's found something far better. Let's close our eyes. Let's just hand over to him our religious worldview. Let's just hand over to him all the ways that a religious understanding of God have clouded our picture of God. Let's just give him our failures. Just hand him your failures. Hand him all the things you don't like about yourself. Just hand them to him. Just see him standing there. Just give them to him. And then give him your successes too. Because they get in the way of seeing him clearly as well. There's no wall you won't kick down. There's no lie you won't tear down. You're coming after me. Jesus was reckless all the time, especially reckless with religion. He's just as reckless today as he comes after you. Don't let your successes or your failures come between you and him. Just accept his love for what it is. And be transformed. And receive that confidence and freedom. Just listen to him for a minute. Lord, what do you want to say? What do you want to say to each one of us from this message? Now listen to what he says. beautiful name it is. What a beautiful, beautiful name. The name of Jesus. How incomprehensible your love. How irrationally kind. How good you are, Lord. Let your blindness be removed so you see him more clearly. What a wonderful, wonderful Savior. What a good friend. What a kind Father. Patient and gentle. Forgiving. 
understanding, compassionate, wise, comforting, your friend. 